is Allison Carter, Occupational Therapist with the Milestones Podcast. This is episode 85, and I wanted to start off today by saying that I am so happy that summer has finally arrived. I briefly mentioned this in one of my more recent episodes that I had decided to work in a school setting this past school year, and I met some truly, truly amazing people there, and I'm so grateful to have made some new friends and colleagues from that experience. But having said that, I will not be returning to a school setting next year. I am going back to and actually have already started increasing my infant and toddler and private practice home visits again. So uh, I have quite a few ideas for new shows, but I also wanted to reach out and ask you guys to send me an email if you have any other topics or things that you're thinking about that you'd like to hear more about on this show. Um... Now that I am done working in a school and I can actually think again, I'm hoping to get back to putting out more than one podcast episode per month. So we'll see how that goes. I did get an email recently from a listener who was asking about books that I might recommend for early intervention therapists. And some of the books that I told her about are ones that I have been using for a very long time and ones that are, I think, good resources for parents. After sending the email back to her with the information on these books, I thought I should maybe check and see if they're actually still available because I have been using them for so long. Um, I checked Amazon and quickly realized that I think I'm getting very old because at least two of the books are pretty expensive Um, and I'm pretty sure that Amazon considers them antiques now. So sorry about that, but they're on there and they're just more expensive than I think maybe they should be. Um, I have started posting some of the books that I like on my website on the blog page and the Amazon items page. So you can check them out if you want to also. If anyone else has recommendations for books that they like to use as resources for parents or even just for newer early intervention therapists, please let me know and I'll post that information on my website as well. And I'll probably discuss it in the next show if anybody is looking for those resources. Before I move on to the topic for today, I wanted to talk about a few things. I had kind of forgotten about the value of my website. Everything with this business really does come back to my website for me. So some of you may know about this already, but just in case you don't, I wanted to share some information about Google Ads. I know there are people out there that pay a lot of money to have IT companies manage their Google ads for them, but you don't necessarily have to do that. You can create an account if you don't already have one, and it's really easy to set up. I think I was up and running in probably 30 minutes or less with my entire ad. I started out by Google searching my website and clicked on where it says own this business, and I finished setting up my Google business information and then moved on to creating a Google ad from there. On the Google My Business page, you can just click on Create Ad, and it will take you to the Google Ads page where you can finish creating your whole ad campaign. You can decide when you get there how much you're willing to spend per month, and you set a maximum amount per month, so it won't go over your budget. Each time someone clicks on your ad link through Google, 
you will be charged a fee. So for example, right now I have mine set at a maximum of only $60 and I get charged about $1.97 per click. I'm not sure exactly because I haven't been doing this for very long, but I think if you set a higher maximum, the price per click may start to go down. You um, can tell Google what you want the ad to say and it sets it up for you. It's really, really easy. Anyway, I thought this might be helpful for some of you trying to drive more people to your website and to your business in general. Also, I have been a creator on Patreon for a while now, but it's another area that I have been <laughs> neglecting for a while. I wanted to say thank you to Rebecca who has started supporting me recently on Patreon. I really appreciate you becoming a patron and helping me keep this show going. On another note, I received some feedback on iTunes from some people who had some negative feedback, and I felt like I wanted to explain some things based on those comments. Their uh, comment said that it sounds like I'm reading. Well, newsflash. It's no secret, for those of you who have been listening to my shows for a long time, already know this. I am reading. I type every episode out on my computer and then literally record myself reading what I have typed. I prepare every show ahead of time. I spend hours, you guys, typing these out. It takes me a long time to put out each of these 30-minute shows. I do a lot of research, and I spend a lot of time putting the information together in as coherent of a way as I can. I promise you, this does make everything flow a lot better than when I try to do it without the words in front of me. I can't remember which episode it was, but some time back I recorded a show by just using an outline to go off of. And if you've been listening to my show for a while, you might remember it. There are a lot of ums and uhs and some of it I was able to cut out when I did my editing, but the amount of stopping and re-recording I had to do was crazy. By typing it out first, I'm able to stay on topic, keep the thoughts rolling in an organized way without going completely off on tangents and forgetting to come back to the topic. I realize that sometimes I might speak in a reading voice, which can be more monotone, and it is something that I am always aware of and I do try to work on. It isn't always easy to make yourself sound like you're having a conversation with yourself or your microphone without feeling a little weird or crazy. But I do try because I don't want you all to be bored when you listen to me. I'm literally recording these shows in my kitchen at my house. I don't have a recording studio. I don't have anyone helping me on any of it. I write it all, I record it all, I edit it all, nobody helps me. I'm just one person and I'm trying to give you guys some free information based on my experiences and my knowledge. And I just don't have the luxury of a fancy recording studio or even a private office for recording. I'm simply just trying to put out free information to you because I want to. You don't have to pay for my shows and I don't get paid to do them. So I hope that people want to listen, but if you don't like the way I sound, you don't have to listen to me. I spend a lot of time setting all of this up, and 
I started it because I really just wanted to be able to provide information that I thought might be helpful to other therapists and parents and whoever else wanted to listen. I do get positive emails from people who listen to my show, and I guess they don't get bored by my voice. I appreciate you guys sticking with me and also letting me know that you're out there. Okay, I'm finally ready to get to the topic for today's show that I have been preparing and writing out for you. I will be reading it, but I will try to sound like I'm not. Now, I wanted to talk about what an IFSP is compared to an IEP. For those of you working in infant and toddler, you will be familiar with IFSPs, but you may not know all of the ins and outs of IEPs and vice versa. In case you aren't familiar with these terms, an IFSP is an Individualized Family Service Plan and an IEP is an Individualized Education Program. The IFSPs are used for Part C services or early intervention programs for ages birth to two. And the IEPs are used for Part B services in the school settings for ages three to 21. Now, IDEA, which is the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, is a law that was put into place starting back in the 70s to ensure that all kids with disabilities that meet certain criteria would have access to a free education and an education that is appropriate for their individual needs. It is also where the term the least restrictive environment comes from. This is the law that regulates how kids with disabilities will receive special education services. Now, starting with IFSPs, or the Individualized Family Service Plans, this is a document that is created when a child is found eligible for early intervention services. Let me back up briefly and explain where this starts. The early intervention services I'm talking about are the infant and toddler programs that are run through each state. A child is referred to the program either self-referred by their parents or a doctor or a hospital. These are often the places that refer them to our program. The family will go through an intake process where they will meet with someone from the program, discuss their concerns, medical history, and, and things like that. After the intake process, the infant and toddler will be um, evaluated by one of the providers from the program that is deemed appropriate for their individual situation. Now we've talked about all this before. I'm not going to get into all the specifics of that because the point is to talk about the documents. But um, once the child is found eligible for the program following the evaluation and they qualify based on that state's criteria, then an initial meeting will be set up with the family and a service coordinator and ideally the provider who completed the evaluation. This is when the IFSP is actually created. This document is literally created from the ground up at this meeting. Now each state will have their own template that they use and this template has not been filled out ahead of time or some of some programs may fill in some of the demographic information automatically or by um, making a few clicks. But nothing else really has been entered at this point. As we work through the document during the meeting, 
the service coordinator, at least in my experience, and it may be different in other states, but in Missouri, the service coordinator will type into the document during the meeting. They enter what is said by each person of the team under each section of the plan. We use the routines-based interview as our means of gathering the information for the IFSP, and this entails an informal interview of the parents where they are asked questions about their daily routine with specifics about the whole day from morning through night. Now, rather than a question and answer setup, it's a discussion or a conversation back and forth. This helps give a better, more full picture of what their entire day might look like, and it helps give some additional insight to times of the day or parts of their routine that might be more difficult. And they may not have mentioned it before, um, before that time because maybe they hadn't thought of it. So an example might be that the parent reports that bath time can be challenging for them. <clears throat> when we ask more about this and have them describe what bath time looks like and they tell what is challenging about it, we can get a pretty good picture of what that routine looks like. A question that follows next is usually, is this a routine that you would like to have help with? And sometimes the parents will say yes and sometimes they say no. It's challenging, but we feel like we're managing it fine or something like that. If this is something they say they would like more help with, the team makes a note of it and we come back to it later in the meeting when we discuss the outcomes. Now, during the discussion about the family's routines, we include conversations that revolve around the therapist's evaluation results as they are relevant to the family's life and routine. These are often included when talking about concerns that the parents have or challenging parts of the day, but not always. Sometimes the evaluation results might be strictly based on a motor delay that really doesn't seem to cause concerns or challenges within this, the family's specific routines or schedule. But we do discuss the concerns with the factors surrounding the motor de delays in this case and the parents' concerns about those skills even if it doesn't specifically affect pieces of their lunch routine or bedtime routine, for example. It may affect the child's playtime routine, which is also an important part of the family's day. The process includes the family's concerns and which concerns are priorities, or like I mentioned before, which ones do they want to address or have support from us for and we discuss what the family's resources are. So do they have family or close friends that help out? Or does the child attend a daycare or a church group, moms or parents groups and things like this? These things can be important part of people's lives. And anytime we can incorporate that information into the plan, we want to make sure and do that. Generally, once we have all of the information from the parents and the team, about the child's present levels of development, what the parents' concerns are, and what their priorities are, then we start to figure out what the outcomes are going to be. Outcomes are things that we want to see the child be able to do, and things that the family wants them to be able to accomplish. This can be anything that relates to the child's development and how it affects the child and family's life. Some examples might be 
The family wants their child to be able to use a spoon and fork to feed themselves. One might revolve around a parent wanting strategies for how to help their child fall asleep at bedtime. Another one might be um, helping their child learn to talk. It might say that the child will tell the family when they are thirsty and hungry. One might be that they want their child to drink from an open cup. Or something maybe general about wanting their infant to be able to sit up by themselves. You can see these are very general parent-friendly outcomes. It is what the parents say their concerns are and paired with the therapist's concerns based on what the parents have said and their own observations from the evaluation. For those of you out there who like specific, very detailed outcomes or goals that are explicitly measured by objective means, these outcomes might just drive you crazy. This is where a therapist moving into early intervention from a school-based setting may have some difficulty with letting go of some of those ways of writing measurable goals that are required in IEPs, which we'll get to later. Once we determine what the outcomes are going to be, then it's time to outline how we are going to measure the progress and also what the timelines will be for measuring them. For the outcomes, how we measure the progress is usually by a statement or a few sentences just describing what it will look like when the outcome has been met. So going back to the first example where the family wants the child to be able to feed themselves using a spoon and fork. We will, say, we will state that we will know when the child has met this outcome when they are able to eat all of their meals using a spoon and fork. Period. End of sentence. Simple and measurable by observation from the therapist and by parent's report. So remember, this is an outcome the parent wanted to work on. The therapist and parent will be having regular discussions and therapy sessions revolving around how to help the child with this outcome. For the example where the parent wants to learn strategies for helping their child fall asleep, this one may be measured by stating that the child will fall asleep within 30 minutes of bedtime. Or this outcome may actually just be listed as a family outcome rather than a child outcome, which means there will be a blanket statement of the outcome and there may not be any measurements really listed. The outcome may have said something like, the family will have a better understanding of the child's ability to fall asleep. They will learn strategies to help their child learn how to fall asleep on their own. Another outcome where the family wants the child to let them know when they are hungry or thirsty, we may say we know they can do this when they say or sign, eat, and drink to the family. Again, simple and measurable. However, some of you may be cringing right now because it doesn't say they will do this three out of five trials or five out of seven data days. Well, there may be some instances or some states that do use that type of measurement for outcomes, but since this is family directed, we don't have to be that exact. The outcomes are measurable, but it is also pretty subjective. The point is that if the family gets to a point where maybe the child is using a spoon and fork for some foods and using their fingers for other foods, 
the family may feel like the child has ultimately achieved that outcome because the family knows that the child can do it. They do have that skill, but sometimes it's still easier to use their fingers for eating some foods. This gets back to the parents' concerns and priorities issue. The timelines for measuring progress of the outcomes is usually set at six months. The IFSP itself is set for a 12-month period, so the whole IFSP will be rewritten at the end of that time. But the team meets for a review of the IFSP six months after the initial plan has been established. At that meeting, the team reviews the outcomes that were set six months before. At this time, the team will decide if the outcomes have been met or if they haven't been met completely, but the family and the team don't feel like certain outcomes are relevant anymore or if they just want to continue working on the outcomes but maybe change some of the parameters. Basically, the team goes over each outcome individually and determines what to do now and based on the child's current present levels and the parent's concerns, where to go. Sometimes the outcomes are updated, sometimes they continue as they are, and sometimes they are discontinued or just checkmarked as met. Then the team discusses if there are any new or updated concerns, and they come up with additional outcomes for those concerns if needed. IFSP meetings are set for the initial meeting, a six-month review meeting, and annual meetings at the 12-month mark following the initial meeting. However, it is common to meet additional times in between those meetings, and these are usually set up because the team maybe wants to add or remove a therapy service to or from the plan. Um, If the family is receiving occupational therapy and a new concern comes up with the child's language, then a speech-language pathologist may be added to the plan in the middle of the time. Or if the family has OT and PT services and they start to feel like maybe they don't need both anymore, they can request to reduce or discontinue one of the services at any time they want. This is similar to the IEP process where anytime there's a change to the IFSP, we have a meeting and the parent has to sign consent for whatever the change is to happen. Otherwise, we can't change anything. Even if the OT and the parent have been talking and they want to try using a new Chewy tube, for example, the parent has to sign consent for the program to order the Chewy tube for their child, which requires a meeting to get their signature for the permission. Now, if the parent wants to just buy their own Chewy tube, and try it with their own child, of course they are totally free to do that. But if um, the program is going to purchase it for them, we need their permission to do that. A couple of other things that I haven't mentioned yet. At each of the IFSP meetings, the frequency, duration, and location of therapy services will also be determined. The IFSP will outline which therapist is working on which outcomes with the family if there are more than one therapist involved. It will outline how often the therapist will be coming out to see the child and family, how long each visit will last, and finally, where each visit will take place. The early intervention programs are meant to take place in the child's natural environment. 
I think there's a little room for exceptions on this, but the law under Part C really wants the services to be provided in their natural environment. This means any place that a child without a disability would typically be able to go, or any place that is part of this specific child's usual routine. Of course, their home is the most natural environment there is. That is the most preferred place for early intervention because at the homes, at least one parent or caregiver will be there to be included in the sessions. Another popular location is the child's daycare or preschool setting. If the child regularly attends a daycare or preschool, then this is considered to be one of their natural environments. And the people that work there are considered to be that child's caregiver in that particular setting. If the parent gives permission for therapy to take place at the daycare, they are consenting for the daycare providers to be considered a caregiver and therefore also part of the child's team, at least as far as to let us give those providers information that will help them be able to help the child or work with the child on things that the parents have concerns with that are consistent with what the rest of the team is doing while the child is at the daycare or a preschool. We can be successful in going to these locations and helping to bridge that information between daycare and home, which can be and is very important. Some kids are at daycares so many hours each week, and that is really valuable time that the daycare providers can be working with the child when the parent maybe isn't able to because they're at work. Some additional examples of natural environments can be things like family members' houses, local parks, restaurants the family eats at, grocery stores, or places like Walmart or Target where they might shop, play dates with other kids, or local kids' open play areas are some common examples. These are places that the family goes, and if they have concerns that are relevant to outings, such as those that are stated in the outcomes of the IFSP, the therapist may be willing and able to meet them there for some of the sessions. So an example of why a community setting might be appropriate for a therapy session is if the parent has indicated concerns about going to the grocery store because their child has a meltdown and cries every time they take them there. And the outcome is that the parent is wanting to learn strategies to help their child go to the grocery store without crying. This would be appropriate for the therapist to meet the family at their local grocery store and observe the situation and ideally be able to offer potential strategies in the moment. This is one of the reasons why early intervention therapists love what we do because we have the opportunity to help parents and families with this very functional real life situations as they happen. It is especially a very OT thing to do, really working on those daily life skills that are so meaningful for people. Not that I'm biased or anything. Before I move on to IEPs, I wanted to mention one more thing about IFSPs. If a child is still in the early intervention program and has an IFSP around the age of two years, six months, the service coordinator will request permission from the parents to send the IFSP information 
to that child's local school district. If the parent gives consent, the service coordinator will contact the school district, send them the IFSP, and will set up a transition meeting for the school and the early intervention team. The IFSP is used in this situation for the Early Childhood Special Education Program to see what the family and the child outcomes are, and generally to get some initial narrative information regarding the child and their current present levels of development. So moving on from IFSPs to IEPs, or Individualized Education Programs, IEPs are used for children ages 3 to 21 who are eligible for special education services in the school system through Part B of IDEA. The kids and I that I was just talking about that go through the transition process from the infant and toddler programs with IFSPs will be evaluated through Early Childhood Special Education, or ECSE, in the school district. This is the preschool program for ages three to five years. Not everyone who is evaluated coming in with an IFSP will qualify for the school district. Therefore, not all of these kids will end up getting an IEP. But if they do qualify for ECSE under that state's eligibility criteria, then they will establish an IEP with the school district, again, if the parent consents. Besides the infant and toddler transitions, elementary-aged kids may be evaluated for special education services based on parents or teacher concerns or certain medical diagnoses. The school evaluation consists of a team of school-based providers um, that often includes people such as the primary or the general education teacher, OT, PT, SLP, the special education teacher, and the school psychologist. The specific therapist, OT, PT, speech involved may not include all of the disciplines. It just depends on the concerns and needs of each student. But generally, the classroom teacher, the special education teacher, and psychologist are all always involved in the initial evaluation process. Parent input is also included in the evaluation process. Parents may be asked to complete certain assessments to help the school providers gather additional information that will be helpful for the evaluation. As I'm going through the description of the IEP process, please know that each state has its own set of specific rules within the federal laws that all states have to follow. So each school district and each school within the districts might have their own specific ways of handling this process. Some of the things that I will say may be different in different schools and states, but I will try to stick to the things that mainly fall under the federal law and regulations and should therefore be consistent across all states in the United States. After the evaluations have been completed, the team, i.e. the teachers, regular education and special education, the therapists, psychologists, and the parents or caregivers meet to go over the results of the evaluation together in a meeting called the eligibility meeting. Now, IDEA law also requires the team to include 
an LEA, which is somebody who represents the local education agency. This is usually a person who represents the school district, someone who understands uh, special education, regular education, and resources that are available through the school district for students. It is often either the principal or an assistant principal of the building that the student attends, or in some cases, it's the school psychologist. During the eligibility meeting, the school personnel describe their piece of the evaluation to the parent and team as a whole. They are able to describe what the evaluation tools were that they used, how the child scored on those tests compared to the norms or compared to other kids their age, but they are not allowed to say whether or not the student qualifies for services at this point. Once the, um, once the team has discussed the evaluation results, then we begin to discuss the process of determining eligibility. This is an important thing to understand. The team cannot determine eligibility until this point, right now. Otherwise, it is considered predetermination, and this is not allowed under IDEA. In order to be eligible for special education services, the team determines that a child is a child with a disability and that the disability is affecting their education. There are 13 disabilities that are possible to qualify for special education, and I have provided a link to the the list of those disabilities in the show notes. Once it has been determined that the child is eligible based on the specific criteria for that state, the next step is to have the meeting to develop the IEP. In some cases, this meeting will happen immediately following the eligibility meeting. Some states or schools might schedule a separate meeting time to write the IEP. But I, I think it's much more common for the eligibility meeting to lead directly to the IEP meeting. In these cases, the school therapist and special education teacher will prepare what's called a draft IEP in the event that the child is found eligible. The IEP consists of the child's present levels, including their grades and how they are doing on state and district assessments, if applicable. It also includes information about how they are doing with participating in developmentally appropriate activities or activities appropriate for their age. And the IEP also includes statements from the parents and the team about their concerns with the child as it relates to their education and also what the strengths of the child are. Each of the therapists and the special education teacher will write any goals that they feel are appropriate for the student. The goals have to be related to academics and they must be functional. They should describe ways to help the child be able to make progress within the general education curriculum and specifically meet their needs as they relate to their disability. The goals are set annually and the IEP outlines how the progress will be measured how often the progress will be measured, and how the progress will be reported to the family. Generally speaking, the progress is measured on a quarterly basis that aligns with regular quarterly progress notes at the same time 
as the general education quarterly progress reports. And the family will usually obtain a copy of these reports from the student's general education teacher. The goals in the educational setting have more stringent guidelines than the IFSPs. The goals have to be specific as to what the child will be expected to do as it relates to their education and exactly how it will be measured progressively over the year. An example OT-related annual goal for a student in kindergarten, for example, might say something like this. In 35 instructional weeks, the child will independently use scissors to cut out simple shapes, i.e. circle, square, and triangle, within a quarter inch of the guidelines, as measured by direct observation on three out of four trials. Then, in many cases, the goal is broken down into smaller progressive steps that lead up to that final annual goal, which ends up being the fourth quarter measured by this child's IEP. And the first three-quarter progress statements are similar to this annual fourth part of the goal, but they are the steps that lead up to it, like I said. So for example, the first quarter progress statement piece of the goal for this student might say, by the end of the first quarter, the child will use scissors to cut out simple shapes, i.e. circle, square, and triangle, within a quarter inch of the guidelines, given no more than maximum physical prompting, as measured by direct observation on three out of four trials. Then each quarter, the progress in this case, is measured by the amount of physical prompting that the child needs to complete the activity. Sometimes it could be measured by how accurate the child is to cutting closer to the guidelines. Maybe starting out with the statement saying they'll cut within a half inch of the guidelines and maybe minimal prompting, and then moving towards getting to within a quarter inch of the guidelines and less prompting, or something like that. The team also needs to decide what setting the student will participate in the goal activities with the therapist's direction. The most common choices are either in the general education classroom or in the special education setting, which usually is the same as what is considered to be the therapy room. IDEA requires the setting to be the least restrictive environment for each student. Similar to the theory of the natural environments for IFSPs, you might think this means the general education classroom would be the least restrictive environment for all students then, but that that isn't necessarily the case, at least right away. Many of the students we work with will have difficulties with attention, focus, distraction, sensory issues, things like that. And in those cases, it might be most beneficial for them to be pulled out of the classroom to work on their goals in a separate location like the therapy room, for example. This environment may be the best fit at that time for them to be able to have the best chance for learning. However, for some students, they can handle being in the classroom with some additional one-on-one attention and still have the ability to learn and practice and benefit from the therapeutic activities while staying in their classroom. The team has to weigh out all of the factors to make sure they're making the best decisions for that student's needs and abilities. And of course, we may guess wrong at the beginning and have to 
amend the IEP later and make adjustments. Since we are all striving to help all students stay in or return to the general education classroom, the ultimate goal is to reduce the frequency and duration of the pullout times as appropriate if and when it is appropriate. The additional aspects of the IP um, calls for modifications and accommodations. Many of the students with IEPs will benefit from some type of modification or accommodation or both to their environment. Modifications might be things like sensory things like noise-canceling headphones, weighted lap pads, fidget toys, ball seating, or it could be things like yellow highlighted paper for writing or erasable pens as an adapted writing tool. Accommodations might be things like preferential seating or placing their desk at the front of the classroom closer to where the teacher stands to try and reduce distractions from the rest of the classroom or quiet separate location for testing for those kids who benefit from this while trying to read and comprehend. They could also have things like having a person read the test statements aloud to them, or they could have it stated that the, the student can read aloud to themselves during the testing. This would also be a place to add if they benefit from sensory breaks, that those are outlined in the accommodations. For example, they might get a five to seven minute sensory break outside of the classroom three times per day or something like that. All of these things are put into the IEP to ensure that for one, everyone who works with the student will know what the plan is, and for two, that everything stated in the IEP becomes required for the school to provide for that student. It is a legally binding plan that once set in place, the school has to follow it as outlined. Just like the IFSPs, in this way, there cannot be changes made to the plan without the parent signed consent first. Every three years, the team will decide if they want to reevaluate the student. If the team feels like the student still demonstrates a disability and will continue to benefit from special education based on classroom observations and testing and things that they've noted while working with the student, then the reevaluation may be waived. Of course, as long as the parent agrees and gives consent to waive it. This means the child will just continue on with IEPs and it won't be discontinued. But the team may also recommend that a reevaluation at the three year mark be completed if they think the student has made significant progress and there's a chance that maybe they don't qualify for special education anymore. The reevaluation will be done with parent consent, and the team will conduct, will conduct evaluations similar to what they did in the initial evaluation process as far as using the standardized assessments that are deemed appropriate for the student at that time. And many times it is the same assessment as before because this will give a good comparison of then to now, but it isn't always possible or appropriate depending on the student's individual situation. To sum up the differences between IFSPs and IEPs generally, the IFSPs are family-directed based on 
family's concerns specifically with therapy input. While the IEPs are based on family concerns, but they are related to the child's academic abilities and education. The family has a voice in each of these programs, but the major differences are family life-based versus school-based. As far as legalities go, IEPs are a lot more specific as far as what has to be included, how it has to be included, how the meetings are conducted. It's very specific. In my experiences, there's a lot more legal talk and concern in the school setting than in the home-based setting. Not that the infant and toddler programs aren't concerned about completing the appropriate paperwork and doing it correctly, but I think that the IEP documents in themselves are just generally more stringent on what it looks like. Um, I'm going to end there for today, but I want to thank you guys for listening, and I hope you have a great day.